Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Mike Isertel. Dr. Isertel holds a PhD in sport physiology from East Tennessee State University and is formerly a professor of exercise and sports science in the School of Public Health at Temple University in Philadelphia. He's also a competitive bodybuilder, professional jiu-jitsu grappler, and co-founder of Renaissance Periodization. Today, we're going to be speaking about nutrition for muscle gain, some of the difficulties in performing and interpreting nutritional studies, and Mike's recent career change to adult filmmaking. Let's talk science. So, just for anybody who might not be familiar with uh, who you are or your work, would you mind giving us um, a, a bit of an introduction uh, into who you are, what you do, um, and uh, basically why you should be talking to us about nutrition for uh, bodybuilding and hypertrophy tonight? Yeah, good question. So um, I got my PhD in sport physiology from East Tennessee State University. And I, um, when I was there, I was kind of the uh, head nutrition consultant for the uh, resident uh, Olympic athletes. Um, and that's in weightlifting and there was some track cycling going on. So sort of got my start there formally, and then I've uh, been a professor for a while. I was a professor at various schools in a variety of subjects, including sport nutrition, for several years. And then after that, I um, uh, Renaissance Periodization, a company I co-founded with uh, Nick Shaw, started to really get big, so I couldn't go to work anymore as a professor. And I've been full-time at Renaissance Periodization for a while. And there, I write books about nutrition and do a bunch of videos, and I also was the designer, I guess is the correct term maybe, of the uh, RP Diet app. And uh, that app knows nutrition for muscle gain really well because it has to um, actually program it and modify it for individuals. And I wrote all of the logic for that. So, um, and in my spare time, I'm a competitive bodybuilder, it's not very good, and a competitive Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu grappler who is pretty decent. So. I practice what I preach, so I have a bit of insight, maybe. Fantastic. Um, just before we get on to bodybuilding and you know, kind of the main part of what we're going to talk about tonight, um, I only became aware, uh, probably at the European Powerlifting Conference, of some of the, the work that um, Renaissance Periodization does in sponsoring um, and supporting science uh, when it comes to um, sports nutrition and uh, exercise science in general, how did that come about? Or could you could you go to a little bit more detail about what you what you guys do and and just how that came about and why it came about? Mm. Oh, I'm not sure. I think um, you know. So our business was going very well, and we were able to make uh, quite a bit of money, and our business is based close to entirely on the fact that science continues to be conducted and that there are continual insights into sport nutrition, into training science uh, and all of those related fields. And we're huge fans of science uh, because our entire model is based on using science instead of using some sort of other way to uh, get at the truth. So once we had some money, we thought it was a pretty good idea to give some of that money to folks actually doing research. And uh, so they could do more of it and uh, find out more of the truth, which benefits us directly because then we get to use the findings in order to 
enhance our coaching practices on our digital products so that people get better results. So it's kind of a win-win all around. Um, so, yeah. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic policy. And um, I just thought it, it was something that we should kind of highlight today because um, I think it's probably something that uh, a lot more people could be doing, um, contributing to the science. You know, when, you know, like you said, um, Renaissance periodization had the means to do so. And I think it's just fantastic that it's able to contribute and kind of give back to the scientific community as well. Um, which is classic. Um, the first, sorry, you just want to end on something there? No, 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 no. Yeah, that, that sounds totally good. Um, the first thing I wanted to do when, uh, with this conversation, so obviously everybody who's going to be listening to this, uh, they're going to be interested in hypertrophy, putting on muscle, uh, bodybuilding, um, and potentially uh, some other strength and muscle-related sports as well. Um, and everybody who will be listening will have a certain amount of knowledge in inverted commas when it comes around to what they need to do to, to gain muscle. Um, we do hear a lot about um, the role of calories. We hear a lot about the role of protein and then different other, uh, other different nutrients within gaining muscle. But in, in, from your own experience and in your own opinion, what do you think are some of, let's say, the key aspects that people need to be focusing on when they're talking about nutrition for building muscle? And, and if you could maybe talk about that in kind of a hierarchical, uh, hierarchical manner, as in, what do you think people need to focus on first and foremost? And then from there, where should people start kind of uh, turning their attention to once they've got certain areas covered when it comes to their nutrition? Mm -hmm. So I think that um, if you're not super lean or not even close to super lean, then probably the number one thing you need for protein um, and getting enough of it on roughly two grams per kilo per day is a pretty good start. <clears throat> By that, I mean it should cover almost all of your bases. And then um, if you are pretty lean and you want to build muscle, then fundamentally calories are going to be super, super important. Um, because even if you have sufficient amount of protein, if you're not hypercaloric and you're pretty lean, then the calories that are needed to drive the processes of muscle growth can't really even come from your body fat or unlikely to do so as they are if you're relatively over fat. So if that's the case, then you need to focus on calories being in a hypercaloric state. Uh, and fundamentally, even if you're significantly over fat after a while, then... Uh, you know, you're going to get leaner and muscle growth is going to get harder. And then you again need to focus on calories. So I would say calories are for muscle gain, for fat loss, calories are number one by a long shot. For muscle gain, it, calories are sort of tied with protein, depending on how you look at it. Um, and getting enough calories, that is enough calories to gain weight is a very good idea, unless you're pretty over fat, and then you could probably gain muscle pretty well with an uh, isocaloric diet to just getting enough calories to stay the same weight. And then, um, yeah, after that, I would say the next most important thing is meal timing, which does play a role in muscle gain because it seems like optimizing muscle gain is uh, going to require, you know, anything, anything in which the, the term optimization comes to play, it's going to be at least four meals per day, roughly evenly spaced, roughly, um, the uh, equally spaced amounts of protein. So um, that's definitely, uh, you know, can you gain muscle on two meals a day? Yes. Is that going to be optimal? Probably not. 
uh, for a variety of reasons. So uh, once you've got that covered, and generally four to four plus meals a day is a good idea. I don't think there's a top limit. Uh, there, some have speculated there's a top limit based on uh, leucine threshold research, but I think that research is, uh, I don't want to say significantly flawed, but um, it doesn't say as much as we would like it to say, and it's not as definitive, and also runs into some theoretical problems we could talk about. Um, so, you know, four to seven meals a day is anything more than seven. It just seems like you're splitting up your meals sort of needlessly. Um, and then after that, you get very, very small contributors. Like, that's really just most of it. Uh, small contributors, including what is the ratio of carbohydrates to fats that you're taking in? Um, what is the ratio of... Uh, foods that are relatively healthy that you're taking in versus junk foods. Uh, and then uh, sort of lastly, what kind of supplements are you taking and how is your hydration? That's a very, very small point. Okay, fantastic. Um, I, want to, I want to touch on a, a couple of the points that you mentioned there. Um, one of those in particular were, were your, your thoughts on um, leucine threshold. Um, just for anybody who might not be familiar with the term, would you be able to kind of give a, a little bit of an explanation of what leucine threshold is and how it has been currently thought of to play a role in, um, in uh, hypertrophy uh, in the literature that we have up till now, um, and then how your thoughts differ on, on that literature that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So the leucine threshold is uh, sort of been derived from some research on the fact that if you have a protein bolus, a meal of protein, among other things, and that protein does uh, not have at least a certain amount of leucine in a sort of body weight dependent, uh, you hear the term two and a half grams being thrown around as a rough average for people of average body weight. Um, if it doesn't have a certain amount of leucine, it seems to be that leucine act acts as a unique trigger to muscle hypertrophy, potentially. And that if you don't have enough leucine around, even if you have enough protein, the muscles aren't likely to start growing as much as they could. If you have enough leucine around, then hypertrophy can uh, actually occur. And in most cases, it seems that for the average sort of average food, uh, high quality protein food, in order to get the requisite amount of leucine to be enough to pass the threshold to activate anabolism, it's been sort of hypothesized that that uh, amount of protein is a certain number. And it's usually quite a large number um, for the average size individual. It may be something like 40 grams of protein thereabouts, and if you eat any less, you may be missing out on uh, acute uh, anabolic effects. There's just insufficient amount of leucine in that much protein uh, for you to actually uh, hit the growth machinery very well. And what that ends up doing is if you look at it, okay, so, you know, the average size individual weighs roughly uh, something like uh, 65 kilos, and they're consuming sort of 40 plus grams per meal of protein, that really ends up sort of saying like, you know, three pro meals per day, maybe four, uh, four meals is probably the fee the most meals you should have per day because any fewer meals would risk a bunch of those coming in under the leucine threshold. Like, like if you need to eat, uh, you know, eight meals and all of them are 20 grams of protein, then sort of none of them come up above the leucine threshold and then you potentially have a problem. Um, that's the idea. Um, I'm not sold on the idea. A few people are not sold on the idea either. So I can, if you'd like, I can go into why I'm significantly not sold on the idea. I, I'd be happy to hear it, yeah. Sure. So um, uh, I think all, if not almost all, the studies on leucine thresholds have been done 
with liquid protein administration, something like whey or essential amino acids with various amounts of leucine. And um, that limits the research because you end up having this really pronounced spike of uh, protein in the blood, or sorry, amino acids in the bloodstream. And among them is leucine. And then you have, you know, trough that lasts quite a long time and you hit it again. And uh, part of the way this works is they've also discovered there's like something like a refractory period where after you have a considerable amount of protein, you hit the leucine threshold and then you don't have it for a little bit. If you have it again, that seems to cause less muscle hypertrophy. Um, and then so if you space all your meals too close, you could actually mute the hypertrophic process. So it is thought because not only do none of the meals meet the leucine threshold anymore, but also because they're so close together, the, there's a muting effect there of uh, a, a refractory period. So that's maybe true for whey protein shakes and things like that. I'm not aware of any research that shows that's true for whole foods. And as a matter of fact, for whole foods, it would be odd, very odd. And here's why. Uh, what are called in the research mixed meals. So meals with protein and carbs and fats, which is what almost all of us eat all the time. Those kinds of meals don't enter the bloodstream like this. They enter the bloodstream like that. And they take like, gee, six to eight hours or something to be fully digested and absorbed. So in effect, what you're saying is you really believe the leucine threshold uh, idea and you really believe the refractory period. And you believe that that period is generated by exposure of the muscles themselves to bloodstream-borne amino acids. Then you're saying that mixed meal consumption, let's say four mixed meals per day, the resultant area under the curve, the resultant curve of amino acid uh, titration into the blood looks like this. I mean, it's almost a flat line because when you eat a meal, it barely rises and it goes super slow because you're taking 40 grams of protein, you're stretching it out for six to eight hours. And then six hours later, you have another meal. And by the time this meal's protein falls, this one rises. And so you end up having almost a flat line of more or less continual exposure of amino acids throughout the entire day. And uh, none of that actually goes above the leucine threshold at any time. And none of that, uh, and all of it is, is entirely within its own refractory period, right? Like if, as soon as you're eating protein, there's, there's more coming out of your intestines all the time as far as amino acids. So uh, the prediction based exclusively on the whey protein dosing literature from both the leucine threshold and the refractory period, uh, if you interpret it technically, then mixed meals should be pretty much in a, unable to support hypertrophy. Now, that's a comical insight because almost everyone eats mixed meals and almost everyone grows muscle just fine. As a matter of fact, bodybuilders have done the craziest shit in the world. They've tried almost everything and uh, they haven't ever really seemed to thought, think that just drinking whey protein shakes a few times a day provides this grandiosely more muscle hypertrophy than eating whole food meals. As a matter of fact, they found that it provides no added hypertrophy. Um, and when you look at whey protein shakes added to a normal diet, so long as protein is equated, they don't have a super magical function that we can tell. So the leucine threshold stuff, when people sort of interpret it to a significant extent and say, oh, okay, so like, what does this mean? Uh, th this means I should only be having like four meals a day or three meals a day, and they should be very uh, far spaced apart. Um, it's really difficult to imagine how mechanistically that would cause the detection in the blood of an excessive amount of amino acids or just enough and refractory periods and leucine thresholds. It doesn't make any damn sense. Um, and also from their various experimentation over, oh, geez, we're probably 80 years now, bodybuilders of all stripes and shapes and colors and sizes, drug-free, not drug-free, have tried a variety of meal frequencies. And anything between four meals per day and eight meals a day has been shown pretty much equivalent. Uh, and if anything, the higher meal frequencies tend to be what bodybuilders rely on more. 
um, if there was really this pronounced effect where three to four meals grew much more muscle than eight meals, man, I think a lot of people would probably notice, or at least some would, and it would sort of be a reliable thing that you could count on. Um, nobody's ever noticed that, nor has that ever been demonstrated in the literature. And as a matter of fact, when you directly measure whole food meals against each other, they, between four and eight meals, show almost no difference whatsoever in hypertrophic benefit. So the leucine threshold is an interesting idea that's one of those ideas that uh, works in the research setting, perhaps due to some very interesting conditions that you don't see in the real world, like a meal being just a protein shake. Uh, but I think the situation gets more complicated when you have uh, whole food meals. And then once that's the case, then I believe that model probably doesn't have a whole lot of application to real world nutrition. So to end my rant, when someone asks, what do you think about the leucine threshold? Uh, what do you think about the refractory periods that are implied with that research? I say two things. I say, if you eat enough protein throughout the day and you're eating it in relatively evenly spaced uh, four to seven meals, I think that's what you should be doing. And the leucine threshold and refractory period literature just doesn't seem uh, to be applicable uh, in offering us any more fine tuning to our diets that is useful than that piece of advice of four to seven roughly evenly spaced meals per day, about uh, two grams per kilo of body weight protein. Okay, fantastic. Um, that's a, a really, really well um answer question. Um, just off of that, just because you, you brought up the, the topic of mixed meals and their kind of their, their role in hypertrophy. Um, so I know in, in the past, at least, that you've kind of spoken about the role of um, fat in um, kind of post-workout meals and how potentially um, high fat meals are not ideal for hypertrophy. Um, on the other side of that, we also know that there, there have been some studies that have shown that kind of higher intakes of fat along, along with protein, um, or sorry, the inclusion of fat with protein um, can be uh, better for, uh, let's say, a muscle protein synthetic response um, when compared to protein alone. And I was just wondering, um, how can you, let's say, marry those two concepts of, let's say, um, a potential negative effect of a high-fat meal um, with the potential benefits of including some fat in a, um, in a let's say, a mixed meal for hypertrophy? It's uh, a good question. The, the answer has to be very speculative because we just don't know much about this. We don't have the amount of data or the, the understanding of it at the, the, the mechanistic level to give really, really solid insight. But I'll give you some speculation. I'm at, le I'm at least good for that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, we have uh, quite a few studies now from various types um, showing that higher fat intakes may not be conducive to optimal hypertrophy. Uh, we have at least one study in humans that shows an exposure to high fats after training blunts the MPS response, even in addition to consuming protein. Uh, we have mechanistic study from animal models that show pathways for uh, higher fats or actually for fats directly down-regulating anabolic processes uh, involved in muscle growth. We have another piece of uh, very conjectural evidence, and that evidence is that probably a generation, if not several generations of the best bodybuilders on the planet, consume relatively low-fat diets um, when trying to build muscle. <laughs> So uh, it's got to be interesting to look at that and think, um, gee, you know, maybe it's for no good reason. That, it might just be stupid tradition or mysticism. They're just fat phobic, but maybe, maybe not. Right? And if you see all the other studies on fat exposure, you start to become interested and maybe that's not a coincidence. Uh, so that's the deal with fat. 
In addition to that, there's some theoretical uh, constraints there. You know, fat is not insulinergic uh, to a high extent or at all, depending on the conditions. Insulin is highly anabolic. Over the long term, it is very anti-catabolic. It's one of the ways in which it generates muscle growth is uh, preventing muscle loss. Carbohydrates are the best way to get insulin uh, to secrete. So if you have a diet high in carbohydrates and lower in fat, uh, so long as it's not so low in fat as it's got its own detriments, which we can talk about, then you just get more area under the curve of insulin by consuming a higher amount of carbohydrates, and that's really super good. Uh, in addition to that, carbohydrates, and along with insulin, support recovery from training in a huge way and energize training in a huge way. So not only from a mechanistic level may car higher carbohydrates and lower fats be better in any given training variable arrangement, you may be able to arrange your training variables better if you consume more carbohydrates. You can train with higher volumes. You can train at higher frequencies because you can recover better and potentially even higher intensities because of that enhanced recovery uh, and enhanced ability to perform. So, for example, if you're eating a, a low-fat or, sorry, low-carb, high-fat diet, you may just not be interested in doing five sets of 10 in the squat at 180 kilos. But if you eat a high-carb diet, you may be interested in doing that and capable of doing that. So uh, higher-carbohydrate diets seem to have an alignment of, oh, sorry, roughly 10 speculative, but by themselves not convincing, altogether interesting uh, points in their favor, and where high-fat dieting does not have a whole lot of those. Um, it, and uh, by high-fat, I mean in excess of roughly 0.3 or 0.4 grams of fat per kilo of body weight. So if you weigh like, um, you know, 100 kilos, um, that means, or sorry, point, uh, good God, kilos, 0.6, uh, 0.8. So if you weigh 100 kilos, maybe at least 80 grams of fat or something like that. Uh, anything above that might not offer any advantages. Uh, one thing that I've been heard uh, touted is that uh, higher fat intakes uh, correlate with higher testosterone levels. Um, it's interesting to me, perhaps comical, that uh, some of the same folks that are proponents of that sort of situation will also tell you that testosterone within normal ranges is irrelevant for muscle gain. Um, so what the fuck are we doing trying to get higher normal testosterone levels of fat if it's irrelevant? Now, if testosterone is relevant within the normal ranges for muscle gain, which I think it is just to a very small extent, it's probably true that area under the curve insulin exposure over the weeks and months is also relevant. And then you have to trade off insulin exposure versus testosterone exposure. It's probably a good middle ground somewhere there where so long as your testosterone is not exceedingly low, a lot of insulin is probably a good idea. Um, and if your testosterone is on the very high end of normal, or high as it can be, with super high fat intakes, you may be giving up some insulin drive, um, and you may also be enhancing the level of adiposity. So potentially eating a high fat diet is a better way to get fat. Uh, with a higher carbohydrate diet, it may be more difficult to get fat. Um, and of course, a higher fat diet doesn't supply as much training energy, so on and so forth. Um, I think if I had to take a real good guess at it, I think within a very large uh, range of fats and carbs traded off against each other, you get almost the same results. So I think if uh, you go anywhere between uh, 0.6 grams per kilo of fat and 1.2 per day, I think you probably get damn near the same effects either way. I think if you go higher than 1.2, you might be trading off some effects that you could be getting from higher carbs. And if you get below 0.6, you for sure are not eating enough fats and almost certainly will be paying the cost one way or another. Um, so yeah, that uh, paying the cost uh, for not getting enough fats, what kind of things should um, people kind of be aware of from, because obviously you, you painted a really, really good um, argument for, for, you know, higher uh, carbohydrate intakes and lower fat intakes, but what kind of, um, let's say, negative effects could somebody potentially experience if they're not getting enough fat in their diet? 
Yeah, for the drug-free athlete, I think it's a decline in testosterone levels is probably what you're looking at as the number one. And that actually happens with very low-carb and very low-fat diets that we sort of seek to avoid either one. Um, one of the ways in which you can do this is very difficult to detect uh, very certainly, but the sex drive seems to be a pretty decent proxy. Um, so does fat hunger. So you or fat cravings, probably a better term to, to describe that. Um, when you're massing and eating an excess amount of calories and mostly in carbohydrates, if you look at a spoonful of peanut butter or some olive oil that someone's putting in their food and you're like, ooh, that looks fucking good, even though you're stuffed to the brim with carbs and you're not actually hungry, you might have an uh, excessively low fat consumption. Um, you certainly don't look like uh, uh, protein and carbs like that. Somebody could be like, hey, do you want a chicken breast? You're like, nope. Do you want rice? You're like, well, hell no. Do you want peanut butter? And you're like, ooh. On the other hand, if you're on a really high fat diet and someone's like, hey, do you want peanut butter? You're like, please, God, get that shit away from me. But if you know, someone's like, hey, do you want rice? You're like, yes, I could eat pounds of rice. So that probably indicates to some extent you're not getting maybe an optimal amount of one or the other. And then sex drive, right? So testosterone is highly supportive of sex drive. I'm very, very convinced, uh, so it was my very good guess, that uh, dietary fat, at least, um, maybe other nutrients, have a testosterone-independent effect on sex drive. Uh, because folks that I know who do not rely on the endogenous testosterone also experience declines in sex drive at certain low fat intakes, even calorie equated. So even if you're gaining weight and your calories are excessive, if you don't have a certain amount of fat, roughly 0.6 per kilo, uh, you actually experience declines in sex drive. This is, uh, seems to be pretty, pretty well repeated. And uh, certainly for, for drug-free individuals, this is very often the case. So, you know, if you are trying to push as many carbs as possible and you're eating pretty low fat, your sex drive is good, you don't crave fats, you're probably good to go. And then, of course, you look to the logbook and see if your reps and sets are expanding and you're getting stronger and hitting PRs, and then you're probably fine. Uh, on the other hand, if your sex drive is not not so great, based on how much food you're eating and other practices, uh, <laughs> For example, you're not excessively masturbating and thus keeping your sex drive artificially sort of uh, down, right? Uh, and then, um, you know, on top of that, if you are, you know, uh, if your sex drive is good and your fat hunger isn't, uh, or fat cravings aren't super wild and your training is great, great. If one of those is off, maybe it could be some things. If your training is not great, if you seem to have difficulty recovering, performing, if you're experiencing fat hunger, even though your cal calories are in excess, and if your uh, sex drive is abnormally low, uh, then you very likely a candidate for increasing your fats. I would recommend that as a, as a first action to see if in a few days you feel better. And it usually only takes a few days. Fantastic. Um, you, you did mention there that um, obviously even uh, people who may be uh, using uh, exogenous hormones um, while training can still suffer from you know, the effects of a, a very, very low-fat diet. Um, but uh, do you feel that in general, let's say those athletes can do better on a very, very low fat? And is that something that, let's say, people who, uh, let's say your average trainee who just, um, who, who's not using anything uh, to, to enhance performance, that they might need to be aware of that, that, you know, some people can get away with those lower fat intakes, which, you know, some people might, you know, uh, they, they might show that they're, that they're consuming on, on social media, for example. Maybe. I'm not sure about that. Um, I think certainly that getting super low in fats, a person who's not relying on endogenous hormones um, or exogenous hormones rather, would probably pay a higher price. That's for sure. 
But I'm not sure that people who go super low on fat when they're on exogenous hormones can be immune from all of the effects. I think even they experience better training. And, and it's something you hear from the bodybuilding community of those folks that are, you know, IFB pros that are clearly using drugs. They'll say all the time, like, if my fats aren't high enough, I just feel like shit and I can't train really hard and it sucks. One thing just kind of to, to move on from that, there's a few other aspects I want to kind of talk about regarding nutrition. Um, a lot of what you're quite well known for in, um, let's say, the training world is your focus on periodization in training and using different approaches for training at different times and being quite, uh, let's say, strategic with that training. Do you use any particularly different strategies when, uh, with nutrition, as in do you periodize nutrition with those um, different gaining phases? Um, and let's say if we're talking specifically about gaining phases as opposed to somebody changing their nutrition for cutting. Um, yeah, it's a thing. Uh, it works. <laughs> I think that any time you have training that is doing something interesting, then nutrition needs to follow. Simply by needing to follow training, nutrition should be periodized because training is, needs to be periodized. In addition to that, based on the last nutritional phase you're entering and the one you're coming up to next, nutritional periodization has its independent concerns where uh, it needs to account for that. For example, if you're doing a mass gaining phase after a maintenance phase, where your metabolism is revved up pretty well and you're not carrying a ton of fatigue, then you're going to need to consume a certain amount of calories in order to pull that off. On the other hand, if you're doing mass gaining phase after a fat loss phase, you may not need to start at so many calories. You may need to ease in a little bit more. Okay. Um, just when it comes to um, uh, gaining muscle, um, what do you... Uh, what are your thoughts on the difference between, let's say, a, a more aggressive approach to putting on muscle um, and a more conservative approach? Approach, and, and when I say muscle, I should actually say putting on weight with the aim of putting on um, muscle, because we, we do see a lot of people who uh, tend to go for the, the dream bulk approach, which is you know eat everything inside and try and gain as much um, mass as possible. Um, and then there are other people who like to do it much more conservatively um, and much more slowly. Um, what are, let's say, the, the kind of potential pros and cons of, of um, each of those approaches? If you go too slow, you may be missing out on a certain rate of muscle gain. Um, and also you may be entering tracking problems where um, it may take you two months to detect that you have been under eating. And then you spent two months doing, I'm not sure what, essentially higher volume maintenance training where you're not going to put on nearly as much muscle as you wanted from that sort of thing. And then if you eat in excess, of course, you risk putting on a huge amount of body fat and with not much more muscle. And then you'll have to diet that fat off and that takes time and fatigue and so on and so forth. Though I will say that because fat loss is relatively easy uh, and occurs relatively quickly, to muscle gain that automatically biases the equation a little bit into the more aggressive as optimal muscle gain situation. So we at uh, Renaissance think it's probably best to gain at between 0.25 and 0.5% of your body weight per week. So if you weigh uh, 100 kilos, that's something like a quarter of a kilo to half a kilo a week, which is not super fast, but not super slow in that middle road. And our estimate probably results in the best possible scenario. Okay, fantastic. Um, do, you, do you think that there are any, uh, let's say, uh, metabolic issues with somebody trying to put on muscle uh, 
or somebody with a particularly high amount of body fat trying to put on muscle? It seems from the research that there may be um, that if you have enough body fat that um, any amount of food you eat seems to preferentially go to body fat uh, instead of muscle and thus your uh, partitioning ratio, so to speak, becomes unfavorable. Um, there's also some health concerns of eating in a hypercaloric diet when you're super fat. And lastly, if you're really, really fat, you actually change your skin shape probably permanently and uh, expand the number of fat cells you have, which makes getting super lean difficult. And, uh, you know, when you have like hanging skin after you've lost a bunch of fat to get finally lean, that's not a great look. As we uh, fundamentally, we do this for looks. It's kind of stupid. So if a male is over 20% body fat and a female is over 30 to 35, it's interesting for them to put on weight on purpose. I think it's probably better to get leaner, something like 15 to 10 to 15% for a male and, um, you know, to 15 to 25% for a female thereabouts. And it's probably a better place to be before gaining muscle. Probably results in more muscle gain. I will say that there's a, the other end of the spectrum. If you're super lean, very small amount of data seems to suggest that your body actually prioritizes fat regain maybe before muscle regain. So if you get competition lean every time to try to potentiate more muscle gain, then you may only you know, see some muscle gain for the last half of the diet. But the first half may be just almost pure fat gain, which isn't so much a bad thing because it just makes you lean enough or fat enough to be able to work normally and gain muscle. But uh, maybe it's an argument for if you want long-term muscle growth, uh, competing twice a year might not be a good idea. Maybe taking some time off to be in that 10 to 20% for a competitor, 10 to 15% range in body fat might be good because cycling within that range could uh, have the higher muscle growth yield than going down to 5% or something like that regularly. Okay, fantastic. Um, I, I, like The discussion has been absolutely fantastic on kind of some of the, the practical uh, elements or the, uh, even some of the more theoretical elements of um, uh, nutrition and, and muscle gain. But one thing I kind of want to kind of, let's say, segue onto is um, – the role of uh, nutrition and training in health. So obviously when bodybuilding or muscle gain, um, it has taken kind of a, a major role in the whole health movements that we're going through at the moment. And a, a lot of people will um, openly admit that, you know, building mus muscle uh, to a certain extent is very, very beneficial for our health from a number of perspectives and even from our health uh, in a long-term perspective as well. Um, however, some of the approaches that people would use to, let's say, maximize or optimize their muscle gain, um, let's say, um, higher meal frequency, uh, very, very high intakes of carbohydrates. Um, is there any possibility that those are not as ideal from a, an overall health perspective? Um, or what are your kind of thoughts on, on the role of kind of, uh, bodybuilding nutrition or like maximizing uh, um, your or optimizing your nutrition for hypertrophy and how it affects health. Mm -hmm. The act of gaining weight, unless you are very low in body weight is unhealthy in most cases. And the resulting uh, body fats that you experience that are higher than normal 
And sitting around body weights that are higher than normal, even if you aren't currently gaining weight, is all unhealthy and does not contribute to longevity. So if you want to bodybuild, then you become, you get so muscular as to leave uh, the normative data sets for your height and your um, frame size, then you probably will reduce your longevity to some small extent and, and introduce some risk of various diseases. So uh, is it possible for drug-free individuals to leave the, the realm of normal? Well, yeah, it is. Yeah. Not, not much, but it is. If you use drugs uh, or you have really good genetics for getting really big, then you can leave them really far behind and fuck yourself over even more. <laughs> so, you know, if you want uh, best health and longevity, then you should probably stay towards the lower end of normative body size and uh, engage in a limited amount of exercise that is usually not very high intensity. Some strength training is a good idea, but not too much. Just in general, high volume training is probably not great. And you live a, a, a lifestyle that is very peaceful and doesn't stress you out a lot. You eat mostly uh, uh, plants and not a whole lot of them for your food. There's some lean meats thrown in. It's totally fine. And that's how you do it. It's a very monk-like lifestyle. Maybe not the best for everybody. Uh, so bodybuilding definitely comes with trade-offs. But if you're drug-free, if you don't get much above for a normal height person, um, you know, much above 90 kilos, and if you never get super uh, heavy, as, as far, sorry, super um, over fat, if you stay uh, under 15 to 25% uh, male-female, respectively, but uh, body fat, then I think you're probably like almost as good as it gets. And then if you wanted to get even smaller than that or eat even less than that or be even less active with uh, high-intensity training, then those are just small enhancements to longevity and health enhancement process. Okay, but you're probably not going to be winning any Mr. Olympias anytime soon. You're almost certainly not going to be winning any bodybuilding <laughs> shows or entering into them whatsoever. Yeah. And it just comes a time when, uh, you know, people are looking for what is the optimal for health and performance. There's actually no answer to that because health and performance look very different. Uh, a National Football League in the United States offensive lineman can weigh 150 kilos. But that's not optimal for health in any stretch of the imagination. It is optimal for uh, hitting other people on the football field and walking away injury free and them walking away injured. So uh, there's that, and, and that, that applies to almost every other sport. Um, it's actually been shown that marathon runners and ultra, uh, ultra um, runners and triathletes probably exercise too much uh, for longevity and, and best health. And um, if they trained less, uh, they are already pretty close to ideal body size for longevity, but they train too much and it burdens them and it probably reduces their longevity by some small fraction. So uh, there needs to be a trade-off between a lot of fun things in life, like eating tasty junk foods and playing sports and living as long as possible. And that's something I think an informed individual can do as long as they are coming at, at this with uh, some decent information. Yeah, I think that, you know, those final words are uh, exactly kind of what we're looking for. There's always going to be a trade-off, but um, the better informed you are about something, the better decision you can take about what, what kind of course you want to uh, to take yourself. Um, just kind of to, to, just before we finish up, um, obviously there's a huge uh, amount of, um, let's say, there's a, 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 there's a lot of people speaking about what we'd call the, the evidence-based nutrition movement. Um, but unfortunately, there are some people who take advantage of that by, let's say, um, taking one paper and uh, because that paper is uh, obviously a, some sort of a scientific paper, they're using it to uh, express their biases um, and they're labeling it as evidence-based. 
Um, when it comes to things like uh, health, nutrition, um, training, where do you think people should be trying to, to look for genuinely evidence-based um, balanced information as opposed to the, the kind of like um, uh, one-shot wonder um, evidence-based people who are kind of popping up in the industry at the moment? Yeah, it's a difficult question to ask uh, or to answer rather. Uh, you know, I will say that if you see somebody post a study and derive uh, practical recommendations from a study, uh, it's not really a good idea to take uh, to follow them verbatim, although they could have some interesting insights every now and again. I think that individuals that post comprehensive reviews of the literature or meta-analyses uh, or individuals that write uh, articles and books based on those um, are probably good to follow. You know, people that don't speak in absolutes a lot, people that aren't looking for golden fleece solutions to really complex problems, uh, and people who speak only inside their area of expertise. Uh, if you sort of uh, apply that to everyone you're looking at, it's going to narrow down the list substantially to folks that you can probably... I don't want to say trust, but uh, tentatively assume they're saying something close to the truth. Learn a lot yourself, and then you can filter people even better, and then bring your own skepticism to your own conclusions and desires for various things to be true and, and base them only on, uh, you know, is this confirmed in a multiple meta-analyses? It basically does all of the formal evidence and science line up to it, and also does it seem like it happens in the real world? Because sometimes the, the way science is conducted um, or just a small number of studies or studies misinterpreted can really contradict with what we really see in real life. And, and when that's the case, then um, we should be skeptical because science should match the real world. Maybe not at a first glance, but with some deeper thought, um, there should be some insight that makes some sense. Um, if you're seeing Everybody who's jacked or everybody who's healthy doing something and the science says it's a totally stupid idea, gee, you know, maybe the science is uh, not quite caught up yet. It's not comprehensive enough or it's being interpreted poorly by people. Uh, and maybe it's, like, uh, you know, sort of like science is the first place where we find out the truth and then eventually everyone will behave more like uh, formal literature suggests. But um, I would certainly like to see things that uh, make sense from a theoretical perspective. Most of the people who are at the top of health or nutrition or whatever are doing something like them. And then uh, they're comprehensive. Uh, the, most of the literature lines up in the direction of supporting those practices. Those are probably pretty good practices worth considering. You know, there are some practices that may not have one or two or three of those. And then those you can consider and you can try, but just make sure that in your head you are more tentatively accepting of them. And someone says, hey, you know, like a super high carb diet, so they, they're the best to grow muscle, right? I wouldn't say yes. I would say, yeah, maybe. I think it's likely. Um, it's certainly possible. And I, I'm, I'm betting that it is, but I wouldn't go for sure. And I wouldn't, if I was king of the world, I wouldn't say everyone has to consume a high carb diet. I uh, wouldn't be that sure about it. So um, one thing recently that has been uh, upsetting myself and actually Jared Feather in the background is... Um, folks that post a single study and talk about it ad nauseum and start to derive practical recommendations. Um, I'm going to put this as plainly as I can. Either people like that are just clickbaiting, intellectually masturbating, 
or just don't know theory of science or philosophy of science. Um, one study can mean anything from almost nothing to being completely backwards and the opposite of true and even fraudulent. So only multiple studies on the same subject, usually from multiple methods of analysis and multiple uh, approaches, can begin to give us uh, hints of what the truth really is. So if you uh, a new study came out saying this and that, it, a lot of people will message me and say, what do you think about the study? I don't, I don't think much of any individual study. Because um, the PhD advisor could have simply made up all the data. That happens enough for us to be reverent of the fact that it happens. Um, uh, or it could just, by statistical error, have concluded something that won't be replicated for another nine or ten months. Um, there was uh, recently been exposed specifically in psychology, but all the other sciences suffer from it to some other extent as well, is the replication crisis. I'm not sure if you've heard of this. Um, let me know if and when you can hear me. I can hear you, yeah, perfect. Okay, sweet. So the replication crisis, uh, we've had this a couple of times. I don't want to just blather on for no reason. Um, <laughs> so the replication crisis is basically when they found out that a bunch of quote-unquote seminal works, and especially psychology, on which people base quite a bit of uh, – you know, sometimes clinical practice even, but certainly the reasoning about psychological events um, have actually not been replicated nearly extent you would think. And when attempts to replicate them have been conducted many years later after their publication and popularization, it's been found that they're, they can't be replicated, which is another way of saying they're probably not true. Um, this is a problem that I encountered in graduate school early when uh, I asked a professor of mine, why don't we repeat a bunch of studies or study the same thing over and over? Why are we always, because we would we'd do a study and throw in a bunch of measurements for no goddamn good reason. We're studying like a new thing every other week. And I was like, why don't we like really confirm what we know first? And he was like, well, they, like you don't get grants for that kind of stuff. Like people want to see new shit um, and publications easier when it's new shit, not the same old shit. Um, unfortunately, the people giving out grants and the people publishing are, also don't know theory of science or just uh, perverted by various incentives. Uh, that don't result in, in positive outcomes. What we need more than anything in science is to know the basics really, really well. How do you do that? You do very similar studies on very similar topics over and over and over. You get 10, 20, 30, 40 studies. You start to really understand that landscape, and then you really know something, or at least pretty well. And then you can move on to the next topic. Um, but, you know, you have a study published on this, a study published on that, and at the end of the day, you just, uh, you're sort of like, that's a mass dilettantism where uh, the scientific community as a whole knows a little bit, almost nothing, possibly doesn't know about all types of shit. And that, that really just doesn't do anyone any good. And it, it pains me to see individuals on social media who should know better talking about one study at a time. What did this study show? What did that study show? It's curious. It's interesting for undergraduates and people interested in science to be able to examine studies um, and to see their flaws and, and their, their strengths. Um, and to, uh, some studies do a very good job of explaining the possible theoretical directions, but as far as their results and conclusions are concerned, it's almost, uh, almost irrelevant. So I'll go back to just saying people will ask, what did you think of this one study? I, I don't think of one study. Um, if you tell me, what do you think of the body of literature on this topic, then I probably have something to say, unless there's been like two or three studies, and then I have nothing to say. Um, Dr. Gabrielle Fondaro, who does our, uh, our advanced nutrition here at Renaissance, and she is a gut health expert and did her PhD in gut health. Um, people ask her about, oh, so what do you think about gut health and exercise? Well, there's been like three studies on it, not very expansive studies. So she basically says, I don't think about gut health and exercise. We don't fucking know anything. And anyone who tells you about gut health and exercise is fucking lying. They're literally just making stuff up because the evidence doesn't exist for what they're saying, and nor does the theoretical rationale. 
So we got to be really, really careful that science is powerful, but it has a limited reach. And if we imagine science to have a much bigger reach than it does, we're just going to be popularizing something that's wrong a lot. Um, and then we'll be in some real bullshit. Uh, a good example of this is the early research on protein feedings showed that roughly 20 grams of protein optimized hypertrophy. Uh, most people who knew anything knew that was dog shit from the start, but a couple of studies in, and everyone who was evidence-based was saying, well, you shouldn't consume more than 20 grams of protein at a time, which is fucking wrong. Uh, and then, you know, those are the same, like, pencil-necked fucktards that go online and debate people who are actually jacked. And then they're like, oh, I'm smart, I know science, and jacked people usually aren't smart and don't know science, because uh, they do a lot of yelling and lifting instead. And then they just sit there and say, well, you're a fucking pencil-necked asshole, and fuck you. And then 10 years later, it turns out pencil-like asshole was wrong because he misinterpreted science with too few research studies on a population that wasn't externally valid to the one they're trying to talk about. And they have to sort of backstep and say, well, actually, you know, 40 grams, 40 to 60 grams. It turns out 30 to 60 grams is a good range. And the, all the, the fucking morons that are actually gigantic jack bodybuilders are like, see, I told you the bros got it right all the time all along. And like, yeah, if you want to continue to embarrass the scientific community by saying dumb shit on its behalf, fucking rock on and just take one study at a time and pro proclaim it as gospel. But if you want to give good advice to people that are actually trying to get jacked and shut the fuck up while you don't know anything and, uh, uh, you know, or not, there's a very competitive space in uh, social media and evidence base. And if, uh, if you give people wrong advice all the time, you'll eventually shit away your good name and no one gives a shit the fuck what you say. Uh, so, you know, there it is all, all, all back to square one, I suppose. That was an absolutely um, uh, fantastic answer. Um, I, 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 you know, th there's so many things I could say about that. Um, the, the one thing, uh, like, I, I completely agree that there needs to be more, um, let's say, uh, replicability within um, the, the science that's going on at the moment. I, I suppose the, a, lo a lot of those issues that came out of um, when they were talking about the studies that couldn't be replicated, as you said, a lot of them were in the field of psychology. And even when we think of psychology, it's potentially uh, easier to perform a study in psychology than it is to perform a nutritional intervention or a training intervention where you're going to need, you know, much longer um, time periods and you're going to need to be uh, uh, kind of getting involved in people's lives in a much more serious yeah. way. Um, doesn't mean it's easy, um, but it doesn't make what you say any less true at all. Um, that's, that was a, a kind of a fantastic uh, rundown of some of the issues with the industry at the moment. Yeah, well, <laughs> just a, just a quick example of an actual study that was done like that. Uh, I guess the 20 gram protein studies. I said, remember the Norwegian Frequency Project? I'm I'm not familiar with it. No. So they did uh, in Norway. They did some research uh, in powerlifters, uh, three day a week training versus six day a week training per body part, and they showed that six days a week was better. And then uh, people would just ask for about two years straight what what various evidence-based practitioners thought of the Norwegian Frequency Project. And my favorite answer comes from Brad Schoenfeld, who I'm sure you know, have heard the name. Uh, he'd say, uh, you know, I'm really curious about that data, but does it get to be published? <laughs> it was basically like a poster presentation or people just hinted at it in social media through various forms of private communication. And a couple of the graphs and charts got out, but it was never actually published in a peer-reviewed journal. It still hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed journal as far as I know. So uh, it was one of those things that wasn't even a study yet. Like as far as, as, far as the formal lit review process, 
it wasn't even vetted by the peer review process and people were asking what they thought about it. And, and even if it was vetted and if it will be vetted, it doesn't fucking matter because it's one fucking study. Now there's like 20 good studies on training frequency that say a lot of really insightful shit taken together. Uh, Brad Schoenfeld, Greg Knuckles, and James Krieger have done three independent reviews of literature for that mass quantity of studies. They've come to um, uh, some conclusions that are similar, some that are different, but all that are very rational. That's what you go to when you want to know what training frequency is and how it affects hypertrophy. You don't ask people, what do you think of this one study? There's almost a perfect example of that. Like, it could just be aberrant. Right? Some studies just show weird fucking shit. Um, and some of them are fraudulent. Just real quick, another way to point this out. Uh, there's famous uh, people can Google this if you want. The Ramazzini studies from Italy, the Ramazzini Institute conducted studies on aspartame in rats, and they found out that aspartame does just about everything bad to rats that you could possibly do. It gives them cancer, it makes them age faster, all this other crazy shit. And the thing is, there's no other study on aspartame ever found that, and there have been like a thousand studies on aspartame. I'm not joking, it's not like an exaggeration, it's a thousand, right? Roughly a thousand. So, it's fucking weird. Why the fuck would they find that? Well, it turns out this, uh, they denied a request for raw data, which means that they made up their data <laughs> the whole, or it had so many holes in it, it wasn't able to conclude anything. And there's a bunch of other problems that they pointed out in the paper that even they reported themselves, like the animals that were given aspartame were, turns out, not the same age as the animals that weren't. They were much older, so they got more cancer because they're fucking old. <laughs> um, all kinds of crazy shit. And then these Ramazzini studies to this day are cited Almost everyone who's against aspartame. You get in a Facebook debate about aspartame, people be like, they kill rats. Link Ramazzini studies that have been debunked. And uh, to the extent that which Ramazzini Foundation is like, ah, just kidding, you know. <laughs> uh, so they've been retracted from all the major journals. And, and then the pe people are still concluding like, yeah, this is, this is aspartame is bad. And people, even open-minded people say, but isn't aspartame bad? And they're like, no, it's not. And they're like, but what about the studies? And they're like, what studies? And then you look it up and then you send them the Wikipedia link for the Ramazzini controversy. And they're like, Fuck. I wish somebody told me that. But when you're cherry picking for results because you are biased against artificial things, yeah, you know, studies were bullshit or not, you don't really care about. So the consensus of the field as a whole is what you want. If you want to see if aspartame is safe, you look at various Wikipedia links talking about all the studies on the net balance that many government organizational bodies have reviewed. I think over 90 countries uh, equivalent of the Food and Drug Administration uh, have approved aspartame based on reviewing all the evidence. Yeah, it's probably really safe. So it's not sexy to do that, but it's probably the best path to the truth. That was a, uh, a fantastic um, way of kind of uh, making people aware that they shouldn't be um, just focusing on one single study and should be kind of looking at the broad body of the literature. Um, and I, I know it's it's something that I've I've done myself in the past. Definitely, I've I've kind of gotten excited about one study and. Um, it almost makes you forget about what the, the, the greater body of research is until you kind of uh, slap yourself and come around to Yeah, yeah. Reality. And actually, just a quick announcement. I'm, uh, among many other ventures, I'm involved in uh, producing adult videos. And uh, one of our upcoming titles is called Body of Literature. It's really good. I mean, crazy stuff. I don't even know if it's going to be legal to put out. Everybody... Uh... Get onto uh, Google later on. Um, maybe open up a, a, a separate search window and uh, yeah, look for body of literature starring Dr. Mike Isertel. Um, <laughs> maybe do it. Don't do it when your grandparents are around or anything like that. Uh, Definitely not. Grandma's not going to understand. <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, this is going to be the, the talking point of this uh, of this podcast, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Mike. Um, 
This has been an absolutely fantastic uh, conversation. I really, really appreciate your time. You've been incredibly um, generous with it. Um, just before we finish up, is there uh, any way that people can kind of stay up to date um, with, with you and what you're getting up to? Sure. Well, one of those sources that are reliable about the nutrition that you're talking about is my company, RP Strength. Our Renaissance Periodization is the full name, but who the fuck can spell that? So you go on Instagram, you type in at RP Strength. And it's all kinds of cool stuff. And we write books and make videos and tons of free content, a little bit of paid content too if you're into paying money. And we have an app, the RP Diet app. I designed it along with some fellow colleagues of mine. I suppose fellow colleagues is a bit of a uh, you know, redundancy there. And uh, it's really sweet. If you don't want to bother with all this diet stuff and thinking about it, this AI just does it all for you. You just pick your favorite foods. It tells you how much to eat and when and gets you lean, gets you muscular, whatever you want. And then if you're interested in half-naked pictures and videos of people lifting with a very full range of motion, then RP Dr. Mike on Instagram is my Instagram handle. I would tell you my Facebook. It's Mike Isvertel. But Facebook is fucking dying, and uh, the algorithms for, for virality are awful. It's just Facebook doesn't want, you, doesn't want anyone to see your posts anymore. Uh, so find me on Facebook, but good luck. I'm also nominally on Twitter because my Facebook auto-reposts to Twitter, but I fucking hate Twitter because I have nothing valuable to say in 280 characters or less, as you can probably tell by my excessive verbosity on this podcast. <laughs> So um, I'm on Twitter, but don't interact with me there because I'm a ghost. I will make posts, but that's not really me. That's auto-posting. And if you ask me a question on Twitter, prepare to have it not answered. Fantastic. I can absolutely uh, vouch um, for Mike uh, about the uh, semi-naked pictures of him on uh, his Instagram account. If you want to get a good indication of what his, uh, his first uh, adult film, Body of Literature, is going to be like, check that out first. And then when you get to body of literature, that's really going to show you what a full range of motion is. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> you know, you just made yourself a spot on the promotional team. That's really good. Mike, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic talk. Um, we'll have to get you back sometime again. Uh, have a fantastic day. And um, thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. Um, if you did, please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps spread word of the podcast to new listeners. Uh, if you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at be underscore more underscore nutrition. I'd also love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast, so please feel free to comment on the podcast post or send me a message directly on Instagram. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.